Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network. Featuring tales to terrify and the all-new far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello, and welcome to show 452. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We have one story today. That's all we've got in, in today's show. It's only, I think, runs for 35 minutes as well. So we're, we're in and out today, as they say. But I hope you, you know, stick around and actually enjoy the story as well. It is a fine story. Must Supply Own Work Boots by Malcolm Delvin. And it's narrated by Jonathan Shaw. But I'll get a little into it in a second or two. But the, the reason why, it, it's just, I'm interested to find out as well. We did have a short story that was going to come up in the day show as well, but I can't find it in me in my folder. I know Jeremy's now some. I think he's in Italy now. He's all over the shop. So we'll run the short story when we can. But it's just interesting, to, you know, if you've got any comments on how the layout of the show. If you've noticed, I've kind of eased off on interviews. I actually wanted. To, I do want to do one interview soon. I want to speak to Alan Steele if I can get a hold of him. He wrote a novel called Arkwright. Just come out. Oh man, man, it's just fantastic. It just starts off right at the science fiction world convention, the very first one, and it works right the way through, right up until the future, and it's just brilliant. I've loved Alan Steele's Coyote series. That was just tremendous for me. I just loved all that. I would listen to the audio versions. Just gorgeous, you know what I mean? So it'd be nice to get in, in touch with Alan, see if I can have a little chat with him about that. If you haven't read Arkwright, I seriously recommend getting get a hold of a copy. And if you have read it, well, hopefully, when I, if we can get Alan on the show, I'll have a chat with him and see how how he kind of came up with this idea. Because it is just, it's a great, if you love science fiction, do you know what I mean? It just... I don't want to kind of spoil anything. I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll stop there <laughs> until that show comes on. 
So, yeah, we've got one story today, and like it was called Must Supply Your Own Workboots by Malcolm Devlin. Originally appeared in Interzone magazine. I'll give you a little heads up about Malcolm Devlin. Malcolm Devlin's stories have appeared in Black Static Interzone. He aspires to have the world's shortest author bio. <laughs> Full stop. The story is narrated by Jonathan Sharp. Jonathan lives and works in a sleepy southern New Mexico town alongside his exceedingly talented wife, Paige. When he is free from the mountains of organic vegetables under which he works, he plays in front of the microphone in the hope it may one day talk back to him. In addition to Starship Sova, he has up-and-coming stories for the District Wonders podcast, Farfetched Fables and Tales to Terrify. And Jonathan has a sweet, sweet, lovely voice. Jonathan, thank you so much. So... The Starship Sova is very proud to present. Must Supply Own Work Boots by Malcolm Devlin. Originally published in Interzone number 255, November December 2014. Read by Jonathan Sharp. A 30 foot baby loomed over the main gate to the docks. Pink skin airbrushed and flawless, its wide smile was all gums and its eyes shone with innocent wonder. It promised perfection through embryonic engineering and IVF treatment, but the scale of the billboard made the child appear monstrous to those at street level. Tripp glanced down at Belle as they passed. Nestled in the folds of the sling tied across his chest, she had her serious face on, an 18-month-old frown analyzing everything she saw. He wondered how he must look from her perspective, every bit as monstrous as the billboard most likely a punch-drunk smile breaking behind the bristly moon of his chin. She had inherited Christie's eyes, and with them, her look of skeptical amusement. He hoped to God she wouldn't get the rest of her looks from him. The hull of a liner was being built in the dry dock. A domestic, Tripp judged, short haul. A polished sheen of yellow-gray steel and alloy. It towered over the harbor district like a glittering cliff face, diminishing into the upper reaches of the morning haze. Around it, drones zipped and hovered. Suspended status modules blinked and sparks fountained. There was a sharp smell of oil and ozone, a bitter taste of salted iron. The city had always been proud of its industry. The sea may have rolled back, leaving wide prairies and fens in its place, but the harbor district had adapted. They still manufactured ship parts like they used to, but the type and scale of the vehicle they fitted had now long since evolved. Tripp checked his watch, an old, resolutely analog device he had inherited from his father. It had been in the family for who knows how long, but with a little maintenance and attention, it still kept good time. He had over an hour to kill before Brody was expecting him. He turned off the concourse and carried Bell to the viewing platform where a scattering of tourists stared upward at the hull, cupping their eyes against the morning sun. He stood back from the railing and turned Bell out of the sling, holding her with both hands, he hefted her high so she could see. He pointed out the shape of the fins. He showed the gap which would slot over the vents, the channels where the fuel lines would be fitted, and the way they tracked across the engine block like veins across the surface. She burbled, unconcerned by the vastness of the shapes around her, unaware of the drop on the other side of the rail. Tripp held her firmly, careful to keep her back from the pit no matter how tempted he was to look himself. Those there? Tripp brought her close, holding her one-handed and pointing with an outstretched finger. Those are the tractors. See them? Those little things like spiders all over. 
Those are the guys finishing things off, tightening bolts, welding seams, checking everything is as it should be. They're what makes the ship special. Handmade, the company says. Bell did not look impressed. Your old man used to do that, Tripp said, and as he said it, he felt far older than his 31 years rightfully allowed. Wistful, he watched the contractors at work. The ceramic white and cobalt blue of the Mark IV Exo rigs made them easy to spot against the clean, blank geometry of the hull. They looked less like spiders, more like barnacles. Where the Mark III rigs had relied on a network of rope and bungee cords, the new models used magnetic clamps and vacuum locks to scale the surface unhindered. Tripp watched the freedom with which they slid across the shining skin with a mixture of awe and envy. He remembered the altitude work with a rush of nostalgia, the narcotic, dizzying perspective beneath his boots. He had had faith in the ropes they used back then, and the idea of hanging there without them sent a barbed thrill through his gut. He'd heard some of the workers lost their head for the height after being grounded for too long. Tripp had been groundside for over a year, but he wouldn't allow himself to believe he couldn't go back. Behind them, two tractors were walking across the concourse. By the way they moved, Tripp recognized that they were at the end of their shift. There was a tiredness to them, tempered with a blown-out sense of pride which made them swagger through their exhaustion. They talked to each other in that private manner only those with shared experience can understand. Their goggles hung around their necks, leaving a clean lozenge around their eyes untouched by the grease and sunburn which colored their faces where their skin had been left exposed. Clamped securely at their backs and shoulders, their exo-rigs segmented down their spines like insect shells. The controller arms folded neatly, tool gauntlets hanging dormant on their side. One of the tractors glanced up and met his eyes. She was just a kid, seventeen or eighteen at most, but Tripp looked away, ashamed to be seen as one of those tourists. It must have been obvious to them he had been a tractor in his day. Even hidden under his shirt, the Mark III interface sockets made him look misshapen and hunchbacked. And unlike the new rigs, the Mark III's relied on a certain kind of brute strength. Tripp's physique, all arms and chest and shoulders, made his history clear to anyone who knew the signs. The Mark IV tractors had a slim athleticism about them, and by contrast, Tripp felt like a Neanderthal. They walked past him without a word, and he looked up to watch them go. He wondered what they were saying. He wondered if they were talking about him, the sad old-timer watching how things were done nowadays. He wanted for them to turn and acknowledge him, but they did not look back. Belle murmured, and he was grateful for the distraction. Her tiny hands opened and closed as she took in the colors around them. He grinned at her. Good girl, he said. She beamed back and in some ways that was enough. They stopped by the recruitment board at the gates and Tripp scanned the posted ads. There was nothing new that he could see, just the usual list of apprenticeships and short-term gigs. He ran down each in turn. Contractors must supply own work boots, hard hats, and exoskeleton rig augmentations. Mark IV, minimum. There was nothing for a Mark III. They never had anything for a Mark III. He sighed more disappointed with himself that he almost believed there might have been something worth pursuing when he heard a footfall from behind him. Try the junkyard, said a voice. A fuse of anger sparked as Tripp turned, tensing, his fist balled instinctively, and for a moment, he forgot Bell was with him at all. The fuck you say? The growl in his voice took him by surprise. It had lain dormant in him the past eight months, 
a raw and livid self-pity which redundancy had bred in him and which fatherhood had tamed. Behind him was Kelvin, Big Kelvin from Harbor Security. His glistening, doughy features were slack and neutral in the face of a threat he did not take seriously. You gonna hit me with your kid? Kelvin said. He broke into a grin and lifted his hands in surrender. Seriously, man, I'm not being a dick. I meant they got work for Mark III's at the junkyard is all. He gestured vaguely in the direction of the bay. They bought a load of old rigs when the company was clearing stock. They used them to haul shit around or something. Landerman is there, and Bosco. Remember Bosco? Yeah, he's there too. Loves it, man. Tripp scowled, but his temper was already waning. I'm not working in the junkyards. There was an edge of petulance in his voice, which he resented as soon as he spoke. Kelvin nodded, his grin stuck, his humor slipping. So what? he said. You thought if you just turned up in your ratty work shirt they'd give you a job for old time's sake? Self-conscious, Tripp raised a hand to hide the company logo, machine-embroidered on his chest pocket. Navy blue, heavy canvas. The shirt's fit was generous enough to cover the ungainly bulk of the interface augs embedded in his shoulders and spine. It was certainly the only shirt he had owned hardy enough not to shred as it rubbed over the sharp edges of the metalwork. On any other day, he would have made do with a vest alone, but the baby sling always made him nervous. Its fabric was soft and supple, and he would picture the whole thing unraveling into cotton threads and Belle dropping away from him, too quick and too sudden for him to do anything to stop her. Kelvin's expression was open with expectant insolence. He wouldn't understand. It was clean, Tripp said. Kelvin glanced at Belle, then extended a fat finger to her like she was a puppy. She ducked away from it with a suspicious frown which made Tripp smirk with pride. Cute kid, Kelvin said. To Belle, he said, Hope you don't grow up to be as stubborn as your daddy. She doesn't talk yet, Tripp said. Guess not. An awkward silence lingered. Eventually, Kelvin said, So how are you coping? We're okay. Christy working? Tripp nodded. She's still at the paint shop? Kelvin said. Yes. Pay all right there? He said. I heard they had cuts. I said we're okay. Well, as I was saying, there might be work at the yards. If money's tight, maybe you want to put a hold on that pride of yours and take a look. Tripp glanced down at Belle. She bounced in her little sling. I'm seeing someone, he said. This afternoon, I got an appointment. You hear that? Kelvin said to Belle. Your daddy's got an appointment. I said she's not talking yet. Calvin checked his watch. Well, he said, maybe I'll see you around after all. With a parting wave, he turned away and walked back towards the security booth. They stopped at the grill on the old wharf where he used to meet Christy. It was nearly full and he recognized overalls from the paint shop, the body shop, moldings and logistics. He chose a seat in the corner next to a booth crammed with a group of tractors. Young and serious, their sleeveless tops exposed Mark IV Augs, coils of contact plates like silver tattoos across their shoulders. This group did acknowledge him, a silent nod as Tripp took his seat. It wasn't much, but it made him feel less invisible, less useless. The prices were higher than he remembered. When the waitress came to his table, he ordered a plain muffin and tap water. Anything else? The waitress said. No, thank you. The waitress gave him a look. I don't want to rush you, hon, she said. But it's a weekday. We got whole shifts to feed. Tripp opened his mouth to say something but stalled. His anger was spent, leaving him vulnerable and empty. One of the tractors in the neighboring booth leaned across the divide. 
He had a buzz-cut scalp and matching stubble, eyebrows so thick he looked like he frowned by default. Leave him be. He's all right. The waitress hung for a moment as though deciding whether or not to engage. Fine, she said. She stalked back through the crowd towards the counter. Tripp nodded his thanks, embarrassed to be in a situation where it was needed. Buzzcut half-saluted in acknowledgement, then turned back to his friends. When he had been younger, Tripp and his friends had worn their metalwork with pride. Twelve years back, more, he had been sitting in the same grill, bristling with freshly implanted machinery and a dumb, youthful defiance. Christy and he had been on apprenticeship at the same time. He had played sensitive to her while he played bullshit to others. She had nursed him after his augs were implanted, and he had exaggerated the trauma so he could see more of her. Later, once he had started working in dry dock, he would time his shifts so they could meet, and he was flattered to learn Christy was doing the same. She had been in the paint shop for a while by then. For the most part, her work wasn't quite as hands-on as his. She supervised and corralled the spray drones from the console room. She had her own augs fitted, a series of filters to stop solvents from curdling her brain. Hers were more discreet than his, and he'd never seen her without them. She told him they made her nose look big, and he said he thought her nose was cute. She told him they made her voice go husky, so he streamed Nina Simone albums for them to listen together. Even with her filter, Christy didn't sound anything like Nina Simone, but it didn't matter. He told her he wouldn't have her any other way, and he meant it. The waitress slopped a glass of water on the table and dropped the muffin after it in a paper bag. She was gone before Tripp could thank her. He unhooked Belle from the baby sling and tucked her into the crook of his arm. With his free hand, he searched through his shoulder bag for a bottle he had prepared. He popped the top off with his thumb. Docking, he said, sliding the bottle towards Belle. Beep, beep, beep. Her hands caught it and aimed the teat into her mouth. She gulped it down hungrily, eyes wide. A trickle of milk edged down her chin. It broadened into a torrent. Tripp pulled a sheaf of paper napkins from the dispenser on the table and mopped her clean. On the wall of the pit, there had been a display board showing the number of days which had passed in the dock without incident. When Christy had announced she was pregnant with Belle, Tripp had joked that they should install one themselves, but Belle was an accident of the happiest kind, as though fate had become impatient with them and had stepped in to take control. He looked at his daughter gulping down the milk. Handmade, he thought, with amusement. A gaggle of workers banged through the doors, he recognized one of the women as being the young tractor he had seen on the concourse earlier. Animated and energetic, they steered through the crowded grill to an empty table and called a greeting to the waitress who waved back with a look of pleased recognition. As they sat, it occurred to Tripp he had not recognized one of them. He would not have known they were tractors at all. He was surprised by how normal they all looked off-duty, how easy their augmentations were to hide. With a growing sense of discomfort, he saw how the group in the booth beside him simmered with resentment. They muttered amongst themselves. Tray bakes. Fucking genies. Buzzcut caught him looking. He glowered across the divider. Freak show, he said, mistaking Tripp's look for one of solidarity. Off one production line into another. He said it loud enough for the others in the room to turn their heads, glowering disapproval from all sides. Tripp looked away. He downed the water left in his glass and pushed a muffin into its bag. Scrutiny made him clumsy, but he pulled all his belongings together and scooped a bell in his shovel-like hands. Come on, kiddo, he said. We're gonna be late. 
In better days, Brody's place had been a storeroom for the fish packing plant, which had been in business next door. The market for lab-grown tuna and salmon had long since gone under, but there was still a faint smell of seafood on the turn. Brody opened the door a crack and peered through. You're early, she said. Tripp indicated the shape of Bell hanging on his chest. Time on my hands, he said, then regretted using his daughter as an excuse. Brody grunted and unhooked the security chains. She hauled the iron door open. It slid, protesting on its rails. You're still paying by the hour, she said, beckoning him inside. Your hour just starts earlier, that's all. I hear you. Even in her early sixties, Brody had something of an Amazon about her. She was a big woman in more than one sense, but she carried her size with a rolling elegance and took shit from nobody. A no-mark contractor like Tripp, least of all. Long before he had first met her, she had been a licensed surgeon at one of the plush og shops near the bay. Circumstances had changed for the worse, but she was by far the most competent person Tripp knew. She had never discussed the reasons she left the stability of her old life, and Tripp had never asked. She yours? Brody jabbed a finger at Bell. Of course she's mine. If you're trying to get me to fit a volume switch or something, Brody said, you can just leave right now. Tripp shook his head. She's along for the ride, he said. I'm cheaper than childcare. Brody cast her eyes heavenward. Poor kid, she said. The interior of the warehouse was by turns sterile and homely. It was divided into separate sections with hanging plastic sheets and wheeled medical screens. Brody led the way to her office, in the corner of which a makeshift playpen set up. A padded mat on the floor, brightly colored toys scattered across it. Enclosing the area, a fence had been constructed from upturned benches covered with brightly colored throws and blankets. My daughter, Brody said by way of explanation. When she was 17, she decided she had no use for me anymore. Now she's 32, figures I can serve well enough as a free babysitter when all else fails. She took Bell off him and lowered her into the pen. She'll be good there, she said. I get Jack once a week, twice of his dad's being an asshole. Had his first birthday a few months back. Jack, I mean. The pictures of the party were cute. Bill rolled onto all fours and began to test the edges of her new terrain. It had only been weeks since she got the hang of crawling, and the glee of being able to drag herself around by her arms had been superseded now that she had got her legs to work in concert. Speed had come before stability. With precarious balance, she harried around the pen, tipping over onto her side and then riding herself. Trip stooped beside her. Be good now, he said. Try not to break your neck. I'll not be long. Soon she would be standing unsupported, her center of gravity found and mastered. Then she would be walking, and then she'd be running. Tripp smiled. He couldn't imagine her being satisfied stopping there. But then, where else can we go, he thought. Running is our top gear, and we master it so soon. Brody indicated a stool facing the wall and waited for Tripp to sit on it. She opened a box of latex gloves from her desk and plucked out a pair, snapping them over her hands. So let's see what you're made of. Tripp shrugged out of his work shirt and held it in a ball, kneading the folds of cloth. He felt Brody running her fingertips over the nubs and contacts of his shoulders. You got an extension fitted? Tripp's hesitation earned him an impatient noise from Brody. I'm not gonna bust you, she said. I'm just not in the mood for surprises. Again, you got an extension? Yes, an I-5. Right. What you use it for? Come on, you're not going to shock me. Tripp cleared his throat. Amphetamines, mostly. Paranoia or shame made his voice almost whisper. 
but only during long shifts, not regularly, not for years. You don't have to justify it to me, honey. I just want to know about the hardware. Where is it fitted? Lower back. Well, take your vest off. I'm not a fucking psychic. Obedient, Tripp stripped his vest and sat straight. He could see Belle watching him from the pen. She'd pulled herself up against the barrier. She didn't understand what was being said, but the thought he would have to explain himself to her when she was older appalled him. Brody was dragging her fingertips down his spine. A light flared behind him, and on reflex he turned. Brody steered him back with a firm hand. Relax, it's a torch. I'm just taking a closer look is all. Tripp caught his shadow jittering on the wall opposite. A monstrous outline fringed with jagged crenellations. He glanced across to Belle again. She was sitting lopsided. She had found a red plastic rocket and was already testing how it tasted. Tripp winced. Impotent to stop her and seeing his expression, Belle brightened. She flipped the rocket with one hand and pumped her other arm as though she was holding a tambourine. Her laugh made him laugh. Keep still. Sorry, Brody grunted. So it looks like good news and bad news. We can run a few system checks while you're here. Don't go anywhere. She let herself out of the office area and Tripp could hear her footsteps outside. Her voice echoed across the warehouse. The good news is I can probably take all this shit out of you. Extension aside, if it's all working, some of it could be traded in for recycling. That would cover some of your costs anyway. It's not going to be cheap. She came back pushing a trolley stacked with three control boxes. Thick cables extended from each, wound into loops, and hung on hooks. This might hurt, Brody said. She unlooped one of the cables and pulled the cap off the plug fitted at the end. Roughly, she yanked Tripp's head forward and plugged the cable into the socket at the top of his spine, twisting it home. A low buzz filled his ears. A gentle tingle ran down his back, across his shoulders. Instinctively, he sat straight, teasing his senses, clenching and unclenching the muscles around his shoulder and back. Quit that, Brody said. She unhooked two more cables and carried them around behind him. She jammed one into the socket on each shoulder. Also good news, she said. I might be able to install Mark IV Augs in place of the ones we remove. So from a can-it-be-done perspective, then yes, Cinderella, you can go to the ball. A display on the top control box lit up and began scrolling with numbers. There was a low ticking noise followed by a bell as the stream of numbers resolved into a stable figure. Brody nodded with satisfaction. So what's the bad news, Tripp said. Oh, Brody unwound the remaining cables from the trolley. Everything else. Skip the ball. Stay home. What? Why? She threw a switch. It landed with a clunk and Tripp felt a pulse run through him. He could feel his augmentations reaching out for a compatible rig. Brody's test equipment was spoofing the signals it was expecting, and there was an alien sense that there was more to him than there should be. He closed his eyes and imagined feathery phantom limbs in addition to his own. His muscles tensed, and he could feel the limbs respond. Brody cuffed him across the head. I said, stop that, she said. I was saying it was possible to replace your augs with more up-to-date ones. It's also possible for me to remove your legs and replace them with hedge trimmers. You don't want me to do that either. She crossed behind him with the remaining cables and one by one plugged them into sockets which ran down his spine. Brody, he said, I need the money. I need a job that pays well. When were you last working? Not since Christy went back to the shop, Tripp grunted. I meant what I said before. Turns out I am cheaper than childcare. Have you paid these off yet? Brody flicked the metalwork on his shoulders so it rang. Yeah, mostly. In the next few years. 
You know how much a set of Mark IV Augs will set you back? I can extend a loan. I've spoken to Chepesky. Brody pushed the last plug home with enough force she almost pushed Trip off the stool. She wheeled her desk chair over and sat facing him, reaching out to turn the dial on the lower control box. When did you get these fitted, she said. Twelve, no, thirteen years back, Jesus. And the company upgraded their systems well over a year ago, am I right? Two at least. So, if I upgrade you, if anyone does, you're going to be out of action for at least another twelve months. More if you take the proper physio. That's a whole year when you can't earn anything. A year of Christy paying your way and nursing you back to health again. You following me? It won't take a year, Tripp said. Brody shook her head. Not if you're fine with your rig ripping out of your back when you're a thousand foot up in dry dock. Mark IV Augs are invasive. Some of their users are bred to handle them better. You'll do as I tell you if you don't want them to go septic or worse. Tripp glanced at the control box. Are we done yet? Five more minutes. Here's the bigger problem. How long do you think before the company ditches Mark IV for Mark V rigs? There's no such thing. She raised an eyebrow. Well, maybe there won't be. Handmade. Such bullshit. It's a gimmick and it probably won't last. But if it does... In five years, she said, six years top, you'll be here again and the only difference is that your debt will now keep you on your toes until you're well past 90. Especially if you go to Chepesky. That man's a crook. Before Tripp could reply, the control box signaled the tests were complete and Brody checked the result had come through on her laptop. She unplugged Tripp and let him dress. He picked up Belle who was burbling to herself with contentment. She was feeling enough at home she didn't want to leave. There were red-faced tears, but she was too tired to keep them up for long. Tripp held her tightly and swayed her until she was settled. We're done, he said. Let's go home. Carefully, he retied the baby sling around her. He saw Brody watching with a half-smile. Talk to Christy, she said. His reply was brusque. I will. She shook her head and led him back through the maze of plastic curtains and dividers to the main door. Not all races can be won, she said. Not all should be. We're only human. At some point, we've got to face a fact we can't keep up anymore. I'll be in touch, Tripp said. Brody nodded and unhooked the chains from the door. Before she opened it, she turned back to him. It's not just the Augs, she said. It's the chassis. Remember that. The thing you're wearing there, that's old tech. Things are moving on. It does all right, Tripp said. It's an old model. Brody pulled the door open with an evident effort. Got one myself. We've pushed them hard. We've overclocked them. We've achieved things with them they were never designed to do. But we're the last. You know that. When the Mark V does roll out, don't be surprised if you don't measure up to the system requirements. Tripp frowned, defensive. It's not just me. He looked at Brody pointedly. Brody smiled, a strong smile, a sad one. She gestured to the open door. You have a beautiful daughter, she said. Trip cut down to the main thoroughfare. To his right, he could make out the cranes in the distant junkyard, towering asymmetric cruciforms, marking the horizon like monuments. The wind doubled back and brought with it a smell of salt water and decay, which made Trip think of the sea. But the sea was long gone. Past the thoroughfare to the north was what had once been the curve of the bay. Now it was the arc of yellowing fenland stretching to the distant line of refineries on the horizon. The fens sang with insects that never used to be native, 
a sharp counterpoint to the base rumble of the human industry which surrounded it. Tripp started back towards the docks. He was so caught up in other thoughts, he barely noticed the truck passing him, less still the figure in the back. Enormous and bull-necked, heavy with machinery. The figure hammered on the roof of the cab with a metaled fist and yelled something which was snatched away by the roar of the engine. Tripp looked up to see the vehicle slow down ahead of him and pull into the side of the road. It was from the junkyard, an eight-wheeler dump truck, empty except for the passenger who leaped over the side and landed awkwardly on the pavement. He wore a cloth filter over his face and a tatty Mark III exo-rig bolted to the augs in his back and shoulders. It made him enormous and unwieldy, like he was wearing a backpack full of inelegant machinery, bristling with tubes and spiraling cables. One controller arm was fitted correctly, hanging upwards in neutral. On the other side, the port was covered with roughly applied cross of gaffer tape. Both the rig and its tractor were covered in a slick of dust and grime, but the big, puppyish eyes were unmistakable. Bosco, Tripp said. The man unhooked one of his tool gauntlets and tore the filter from his face. He grinned a big, dumb grin. I knew it was you, he said. I saw you walking along there and I said to myself, that's Trip, that is. I knew it was you. He lurched toward Trip as though he would hug him and then thought better and took a step back instead. How are you doing, Bosco? Trip said. Good, I'm doing good. I'm at the yards now. Landerman's there, too. At the yard. Mick Landerman. I heard. Did you hear about Grundy? He's there, too. Tripp smiled, uncomfortable. And this is Mansky, Bosco said, gesturing with a controller arm to the truck behind him. In the mirror by the driver's side, Tripp saw the reflection of a skinny guy in a baseball cap and shades. The man nodded in acknowledgement, then crossed his arms over the steering wheel to wait. Mansky's been at the yard something like forever, Bosco said. Christy good? We're doing okay. Bosco nodded slowly. You working? Soon, maybe. Good to hear, good to hear. Gotta work when you got family, right? Tripp gestured to the machinery on the other man's back. How's the rig? Good, it's good, Bosco grinned. Needs a bit of maintenance. They haven't got a shop, so Landerman's doing most of the repairs. He rolled his eyes. They keep saying they're going to customize it a bit. Don't have much use for the bolt driver, the welding torch. Out of juice anyway. They might just replace them with shovels, maybe claws. I asked for a chainsaw. How cool would that be? Trip laughed. He couldn't imagine anyone in their right mind putting Bosco in charge of a chainsaw. Their supervisor in the docks made a point of keeping his welding torch fixed on low. Bosco had always thought it was faulty. Is that your kid? Bosco crouched unsteadily under the exo-rig's weight. That's Bell. Awesome, said Bosco. Awesome, listen, wait here, I got something. They let me make stuff. I made something she might like. He half ran back to the truck, the weight on his back making him lope clumsily. Tripp watched as Bosco leaned into the cab window and spoke to the driver like a kid at the window of an ice cream truck. He reached through and retrieved something, then lumbered back to where Tripp was waiting. With a look of enormous pride, he thrust something colorful towards Bell. It was a windmill, a pinwheel, a toy made from colored fabrics and plastic gels. It was mounted around what looked like the remains of a child's bicycle wheel. The spokes were twisted and reshaped. It was carefully engineered, delicately made. Stuff I found lying around, Bosco said, breathless. 
I figured just because it's broken, he tailed off, grinning as the sails twisted and swung. Then the wind caught them and they spun freely, the colors whipping together to a rosy blur. Entranced, Bell laughed. Mansky leaned on the horn. Still beaming, Bosco signaled his acknowledgement with a raised gauntlet. We're going into town, he said, passing the windmill to trip. Gotta pick up a load from the docks. Down in the pit. We get some height to play with, you know? Like old times. There's room in the cab if you want to lift. Tripp shook his head. Thank you, he said. We'll be okay. That evening, Tripp was fixing the windmill to the railing opposite the unit when Christy came home. He watched as she shrugged the daybag off her shoulders and dumped it near the wall. She had her overalls tied around her waist. Her arms and forehead shone with sweat as though she'd been running. Belle was in her travel cot, watching the early evening clouds coalesce. When she saw Christy, she reached out both arms, her expression fierce. What's this? Christy said. Tripp grinned. He turned the windmill with his thumb. Got your flowers, he said. Christy reached out a hand to still the sails. She looked at it critically, and Tripp braced himself. At that moment, it seemed ridiculous to him, something glib and ill-considered. It looked like something out of a cartoon. It's pretty, Christy said. It doesn't smell too good, but it works. Well, Christy said, I guess I know how that feels. She smiled at him, as though it had been a thoughtful gesture after all. Her filter had burnt out several months earlier. They were still negotiating with the insurance company to get a new one, but it looked like they were expecting to pay for it themselves. Until then, she couldn't smell or taste anything. But as with everything else, she was taking it in stride. She crouched down and picked Belle out of the cot. Belle clung to her jealously. Hey, doll, Christy said. To Trip, she said. She been good? Slept all afternoon. Trip? A note of reproach. I know, I know. Proper sleeping beauty. Wasn't my place to wake her, not a real prince. Christy shook her head. You're hopeless. Yeah, I know, Trip said. Christy nuzzled Belle, who laughed with delight in a way that was infectious. She looked up at Trip again. Did you have any luck? She said. Trip looked out from the railing to the city below. The evening sun made the hull sections in the distant docks grow with a peach-colored light. On the wall of one of the blocks at ground level, he could see a billboard, similar to the one they had passed that morning. The genetic company's enormously airbrushed baby, gurgling with carefully engineered delight. Perfection, the advert promised. He looked back at his daughter in her mother's arms. Old tech, Brody had said, but Tripp couldn't believe it. Belle was so new and alive to the world, she was perfect to her standards, perfect to his. Tripp... Christy said again. Did you have any luck finding work? Tripp smiled. No, he said. I don't know. Maybe. A gentle wind picked up, shifting the windmill's rudder so it leaned into the breeze and engaged. The trash sails began to turn, gathering speed until they spun, blurring individual colors into something fresh and new. <laughs> There you go. Hope you enjoyed that. Don't forget, copyright is Malcolm Devlin. Malcolm, thank you so much. You know what I mean? Nice, nice, nice story there. Hopefully you can get some more off you. And Jonathan, what can I say? A big thank you, sir. Thank you so much. Give a little hello to your good wife as well. 
We all need them partners in our lives. <laughs> Definitely. God, man, if I was left on my own. Shocking. What I'd be up to. Anyway, that is today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Do think about, you know, donations. We've had, like I say, a few weeks ago before my holidays there, there were some cancellations coming in and cards and bouncing and everything like that. So we kind of, you know, we could do a little kind of tip of the hat every now and again. Until next week, just like to say, good day from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.